show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Experience, business, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Consumer first health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status no. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Jared Johnson from Shift Forward Health, and here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about the AMA's new health at home framework. What does it say about the medical industry's adoption of home-based care, and how can their guide help us overcome our natural resistance to change? I'll talk about that. Then we're pleased to welcome executive recruiter Kelly Gill back to the program to discuss the latest trends in staffing. It's more important than ever to know how to find, evaluate, and retain candidates, and Kelly helps us sort out the truth from the myths. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. You know health at home is more than a flash in the pan when the AMA takes it seriously. The American Medical Association has published a framework for home care in a report titled The State of Health at Home Models, Key Considerations and Opportunities. It's exciting for many reasons, starting with the report's intro, which states the following. Today, the majority of care services are delivered in clinics, physicians' offices, and facilities. With an increasing disease burden and an aging population, health systems are experiencing hospital beds and clinics at capacity, physicians and care teams who are overextended and burnt out, and higher per patient expenditures than anywhere else in the world. There is a desire to provide higher quality care and improve access, clinical outcomes, and experiences. Delivering care in the home has emerged as not only a possible solution to points of friction, but a way to transform how we think about caring for patients. It goes on to illustrate how a patient's home environment is positioned at the center of the circle with five types of services stretching out from that center point. Ambulatory care, on-demand and urgent care, acute care, transitional and post-acute care, and end-of-life care. Jane Saracen Khan wrote a blog about the framework and said, while moving healthcare to the home will involve quite different workflows and disruptions to current general medical practice, it is clear that physicians in the U.S. are coming to understand the benefits as well as the realities that will foster a move to more healthcare delivered where people live in environments that promise to be safe, comfortable, and familiar. Close quote. This framework is a welcome call for the industry to help break through the nervousness, anticipation, and burnout that is frequently associated with being told to shift care models yet again and the corresponding downstream changes that inevitably trickle down to strategy and marketing. It signals that industry leaders are leaning into this important aspect of consumer-first care. And let's be clear, I don't blame doctors, nurses, administrators, or marketers for dragging their feet on this whole health-at-home movement. It arguably takes a career to master how to give care in a hospital. And as human beings, we get used to the ways that things are always done. But if you're feeling any of that nervousness or resistance to change, take a moment and ask yourself, do we really want to offer consumer-first care? Because if we do, it's going to be painful. It's going to take motivated leaders to usher us through that pesky trough of disillusionment. Having AMA's leadership on board will help. 
Let's applaud the AMA for providing this guide as a step for helping us overcome our very human tendencies to resist change. And let's treat hospital at home programs as a significant, legitimate step towards consumer first health. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the week. All right, everyone, we're back at it. Let's get into the flow. It's my pleasure to welcome Kelly Gill back to the program. Kelly is co-founder and owner of Flywheel Search Group. They're a boutique search firm. Can't wait to dive back in. Kelly, welcome back. Jared, thanks for having me, man. Excited to chat with you. I'm excited, first and foremost, to hear more about you these days and Flywheel Search Group. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days? Yeah, absolutely. So despite there being what I would call some economic you know, storm clouds that have been on the horizon for months and months now with people wondering what's going to happen in the labor markets. It's been resilient. Businesses are still growing. There's been some financial implications, but we we found a sweet spot and have built a very nice recruitment practice in healthcare technology and digital health with two kind of specific types of organizations, generally speaking, that we help. Number one is your large footprint healthcare providers who are looking to build some type of internal consumer functionality, digital innovation, or enterprise-wide digital transformation, and they just don't know or they don't have the reach to engage the type of talent they need to execute on those initiatives. So that's that's kind of one category of enterprise that we help. With another being those third-party, you know, what you might call vendor organizations, a lot of our clients in, in that category are, are venture capital-backed digital health startups who are looking more so to influence and disrupt from the periphery of healthcare than rather, you know, rather than being inside of one of these large organizations that may have been founded a hundred years ago. And so both of those types of businesses are the types of healthcare clients, generally speaking, that we help engage hard to find talent might not have otherwise come knocking on their door and applying to some open position that they put out there. I'm guessing when you're growing up that this may not have been the first thing that you thought of, hey, when I grow up, I'm going to be doing this this executive search thing. What, what, what do you enjoy about the work that you do? Yeah. You know what? I think that's the story of every recruiter, by the way, Jared. Anybody that's you know started a recruiting agency or, or found themselves in this type of capacity, no one envisioned this when they, when they were a child. In fact, I, I had no idea it was a business, like zero clue. I started my career recruiting physicians, a large publicly traded sort of conglomerate of, of healthcare direct placement and staffing companies, and really learned a lot about healthcare from the ground floor, helping small hospitals, helping sometimes large clinical organizations in not the most desirable areas engage physicians and hire physicians who probably wouldn't have come there as their first choice. So what do I love about it? Fundamentally, there's sort of a a strategic chess match that goes on. There's these elements of pattern recognition and understanding what somebody's really looking for, whether that's a candidate or whether that's a client, and helping to deliver on those things. And number two, it's really fun to help people. We would envision our firm at Flywheel as being a mission-driven, purpose-driven firm 
And what we know is if you look at sort of the alternative scenario for a lot of people in their careers where they don't like what they do, or they really don't get along with their boss, or the business they're employed by is, is floundering. And it's, you know, teetering on the verge of bankruptcy or whatever. And sadly, we've, you know, we've seen some of this with the changing financial environment and interest rate environment. It's hard for them to go home and be a good dad. It's hard for them to go home and be a good husband or wife. It's hard to be a good neighbor and care about the people that live on your street and be involved in your community when you're misaligned at work, because it's such an important thing for us, whether or not we really want to admit it. It's incredibly influential in how we approach and see everything outside of work. So, Jared, when I can say that I've helped remedy a situation like that and as a second order effect, created lower stress or created space for somebody to re-engage with their spouse or to get to their kids' soccer games or to be in a financial place where they can better take care of their family without worrying if they can pay the bills. Like... All of those things bring me incredible joy. So the, the human element in helping people find more satisfaction in their careers, that's what keeps me coming back, no doubt about it. Well, not only did you describe a couple of situations I felt like I've been in, but it makes me wish that we knew each other earlier in my career. So it's fantastic, first and foremost, to be able to draw a straight line uh, from your day-to-day work to something that is fulfilling in any way at all, and I know you know not everyone is able to do that. That's that's fantastic, though. Well, Kelly, what I want I want to do right now is set up our main topic today. There's so much we can cover, but I want to put us in the shoes of maybe some of the organizations that you work on their behalf who are looking for an executive, a, a leader, an experienced leader, you know, either a senior or executive level or, or close to it. In any of the areas you mentioned, maybe they have an opening or they have the semblance of an opening. They know they need help doing something and they don't, they don't have the reach themselves. But beyond that, they don't know exactly how to build this team or build up these, these core competencies in their organizations. Can you help us put ourselves in those shoes and kind of walk us through what that looks like and how that can work successfully. Definitely, definitely. And and to me, there's three big, what I might call trends or through lines that a lot of my customers think about, or I would encourage them to think about. And, and this is very specific to healthcare. Okay, so, and I'll name them and maybe I'll come back and define them a little bit. Number one is the balance of industry, you know, healthcare knowledge versus outside industry expertise. Number two is stage of organization that this person has been with, right? Have they been there and done that in a group that is where we are today, right? With the same resources and infrastructure or lack thereof, and have they pulled it off? Is there a track record there? And then number three is potential. Sometimes, let's take a maybe a venture-backed healthcare startup that's pretty early in, in, in its uh, existence. Maybe they're a seed stage company or Series A or maybe even Series B. And, and you may not have all of the resources to go hire the person that has an incredible track record who's been there and who's done that. Because the, the organization itself is still proving itself. Well, then you may have to look at someone that's got the potential to do that. And how do you kind of read and weigh and evaluate those things. When 
you know, they're not definitive, but you think that this person can grow into that type of capacity. So generally, those are sort of three areas that people ultimately need to decide upon and balance for their own business. And obviously, there's some very tactical things that I won't spend a lot of time on, but having like a properly defined scope for the role, it sounds very simple to your point. You would be surprised at how loose and fast organizations will go into hiring an executive without having really given proper thought to what is the bound of their responsibility from left to right? Who should really report into this capacity? What type of budget should we allocate to this particular individual in order for them to have the resources necessary to execute on what we're asking of them? So having some thoughtful discourse with your, you know, your CFO or your VP of finance and, and your CEO or whatever other executive this role might report into and really thinking through the scope is super important because what happens, sadly, a lot of times is you, they end up hiring somebody into a role that is a really good fit for the theoretical position as it was proposed. But in reality, the job itself is very, very different than what was talked about throughout the interview process because it wasn't defined. It was all theoretical. So having some forethought to those things, I think is, is, is just table stakes if you're going to try to hire an executive. And by the way, like the best candidates, the people that do have an heir having been there and done that, they will want to know those things. They, they won't be interested in your organization if those things aren't available to share or aren't thought through. Now, they may come alongside you and help you. But at the end of the day, it's rare that that type of veteran will take a job that they can tell is, is poorly defined or not defined whatsoever. So those are some of the categories. I'm happy to double click on any of them, Jared, if you're interested in talking about it, you know, from a, an industry, non-industry or kind of the the measuring of stage that a person has operated at and whether or not that that is a one for one with your company. Yeah, I think the part about just being prepared and being able to explain the job description or an equivalent of it of what what the key responsibilities are, what you'll be measured on and being able to convey the current state, you know, however positively or realistically an organization wants to to be able to be true in how they depict the current situation. Hey, this is a a net new responsibility on the org chart. This is something that we've tried and and uh, we didn't keep somebody. You know, it didn't work out or whatever. You know, being able to be real there, I feel like a, a certain level of candidness is more valuable than not. Especially like you said, when you're talking about a certain level of candidate, that's what they're going to be looking for. They've been around the block. So I'm just thinking of some of these positions that are so new that. They don't have a job description in the bank that they can just copy and paste. Sure. Some of these other digital leadership positions that have a great deal of responsibility. They know it's a part of their future trajectory of the company or the organization. And yet they're still having to go somewhere to even be like, I don't know if that's a good list of responsibilities or whatever. So I guess it's almost like a step prior to being out there and putting something out there in the market. Is there any road to success there, like things that you've seen successful organizations do or things that have helped them in their search at that point when they're just not even sure, like they know they need this, they just don't know how to how to properly create a job from it. Sure. 
it's a bigger problem than you would think exists. And one thing I would recommend is number one, you could, you could, you could talk to a guy like me, right? Where am I, you know, this incredible business operator? Like, no, you don't want to hire me to be the CEO of your business. I assure you, but I've seen a lot, right? So it's sort of this, this breadth that I can offer as value. I've seen how other organizations may have organized a capacity like this before and what the scope was. That's, you know, one kind of route that someone could go. Go into your board if you're a startup or even if you're a healthcare system, right? Where you've got people that sit on your board or executives that have been around the block and asking for their input and how they might think through these things. That's one easy, low-hanging fruit type of method to try to triangulate on how a role should be defined and developed. And uh, number three, you know, your investors. And some, some of those may overlap, right? Some may sit on your board, some may not. But they've got a portfolio of companies, theoretically, right, that are in comparable spaces. They, they have an investment thesis and they invest in digital health startups or, you know, at the intersection of financial technology and healthcare. And, and so they may have seen like for like before in other portfolio companies, maybe who are slightly ahead of you, et cetera, in terms of their existence and growth and stage. But you know what? Sometimes that's not sufficient. Sometimes that's still not sufficient. It might get you close. At the end of the day, you've got to be really honest about what your business needs and about what is coherent and what is cohesive. So sometimes if I can be more specific, what I mean by that is I'll see businesses that they have a host, call it responsibilities that are unmet right now, right? Or they're currently distributed across, you know, two or three or four other executives. And it's none of those executives full-time job, but hey, it's a startup or this is a startup division inside of a large healthcare system. And we just, we gotta, we gotta make it work here in the beginning. And their idea of creating a job is taking those one to two to three items from each of those three to four executives and just mushing them together and calling it a job. And again, it's probably very helpful to those pre-existing executives who are executing on some of those things or who are responsible for some of those things, but that does not make it a cohesive position. You've got to apply some level of real diligence and and, um, thoughtfulness to whether or not the collection of responsibilities go together and whether or not you can actually hold somebody accountable for the breadth of those things. Those are some of the easy ways that I would think about just kind of at a high level, whether or not you're organizing a position properly and whether or not, I guess, really what it boils down to, Jared, is can you fairly ask somebody to deliver on that set of responsibilities? Because if you can do that, then that particular job may not look like another portfolio company's job or it may not look like a job that uh, one of your board members suggested that you take a look at as a, as a proxy example, but it still might be right for your business. So that's, that's some of the rudimentary, maybe kind of pattern matching and methods that I would advise somebody to, to pursue in thinking through how to build and scope some of those positions. Well, I like that because it's just expanding outside uh, the focus area that we have and recognizing that there are things to base it on. And at some point, somebody had to do that to create this new role. It had to get created somehow. So yeah, I I feel like at, at some point that becomes a little easier, especially if it's not the very first hire in a certain area. So that does help. And then once you get to putting something out there and start getting candidates coming in, what are some some tips for evaluating candidates for a leadership position that's relatively new 
that it's it's not like it's really clear something like marketing, for instance, that has been around as a discipline for decades. So you have some idea, even though things evolve all the time, you can say, okay, we've hired marketing leaders before. Uh, these things are different. These things are the same. If it feels like you're just starting from scratch, I know that can just be a little little daunting or, or a bit of a an obstacle to feeling like you brought on the right person. So, uh, Any tips for evaluating candidates when the thing that they're going to be doing is relatively new? Yeah, there's a couple things that come to mind. I think number one is maybe a, a tip is something to avoid. And sometimes those tips are as helpful as, you know, the, the not to do's are as helpful as the to do's sometimes when you're hiring somebody. You've got to beware kind of shiny object syndrome because theoretically, you know, Jared, in this example, if we're talking about some type of leadership or executive level capacity, it's new on your org chart. It's never existed before. You're, if you're a healthy business and you're moderately kind of well connected or you're well supported by investors, you're going to end up talking to, some really smart people. And it's easy to talk to smart people and think, wow, they, I mean, they would just crush it in this role, right? Like, look at their track record, look at their pedigree, look where they went to school, look where, you know, where they've worked in the past. But all of those things are reasoning by proxy, right? It's not about fundamentally whether or not somebody can leverage experience to deliver inside of your org. It's just like, it looks like they kind of did something similar somewhere else. Therefore, maybe they'd work here. So it's like, t- temper your expectations. Not every really smart person is the right fit for your company. right? So that, that's kind of number one. That would, that would be first level advice when you're thinking about these kind of roles. Number two is, even though it may not be perfectly defined, how you articulate sort of the mission and the vision of your business as it exists today incredibly important, right? Because in as much as you're evaluating candidates, which is really what your question was about, you're also influencing them. You're compelling them. You know, dare I use this dirty word, you're selling them, right? On your vision. And and, and ideally, they leave those conversations or series of interviews thinking, wow, I could really get behind what XYZ company is doing. Right or ABC Health System is doing. That's incredible how they've positioned. Yep, this job, I get it, it's a little fuzzy, but where this proverbial bus is headed, I want to be on that bus. So you have to do that if you even want to have candidates to vet at the end of the day, right? If you do that piece and effectively, then you can vet all you want and you're going to end up empty-handed at the end of your interview process. Right. So that that's important to remember. And then the other thing that I would think about is try to reason from from first principles when you're when you're interviewing people, continuing to ask why, why, why digging into somebody's experience. Don't take it just at face value, maybe. and, And where people do this a lot, Jared, is, oh, you know, John or Susie or whoever, you know, they came from a competitor. We sell against this other company. That's where they've worked. Therefore, I mean, they must know our business. They must know the industry. They must know our space. They must know our ideal customers, right? Because we were bumping up against them in sales processes. It, It is entirely possible that a host of those things are not true, right? That they were successful or got by through some other means. And so you've really got to evaluate people fundamentally on whether or not they can execute the responsibilities that you've laid out. And the one other caveat, I'll give credit. I'm a little late to the game. 
I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, Jared, and I read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which, man, if you haven't read it, read it. I was basically like sweating at the end of the description of his running of Loud Cloud and the near bankruptcies and, you know, cash is about to run out. What are we going to do? Our biggest customer is about to leave. Who's ninety percent of our revenue? How do we, <laughs> how do we pivot and and live to fight another day? Like it was crazy. And one of the examples he gave was hiring a sales leader based on a pivot in their business. And nobody wanted to hire the guy that he had in his crosshairs. Oh, this guy's too abrasive. He's not personable. You know, dare I say he's not your you know six foot three, well built very white and straight teeth, former college linebacker, right? That is maybe kind of a sales prototype. He doesn't look the part, but Ben understood the guy's bluntness, directness, and propensity for training sales reps with incredible thoroughness was exactly what the business needed right then. And so that type of framework, I think, is really helpful. What does the business need right now? And the mistake people make, and I'll, I'll land the plane on this, is, is sometimes... And you'll get encouraged to do this by, by guys like me sometimes, right? By, by recruiters you know, at these executive search firms or by your board. It's like, well, hey, you know, you're not going to be at that stage forever. Overhire for the role, right? H- hire somebody that's um, you know, maybe kind of two or three proverbial steps past this capacity, or they've worked at a company that's two or three proverbial uh, stages beyond yours. And the problem is, they may not be able to execute where you are today. And thus, their ability to execute where you're going to be tomorrow is rendered useless because you're never going to get there. So just being really brutally honest about what your business needs right now and not getting fixated on whether or not this executive, you know, can they grow into the role three years down the road? The role may not be there three, day, three years down the road if they don't execute today. And, and by the way, I, I hate to say this, but like if I were a CEO or a health system chief digital officer, chief product officer type, and I was hiring maybe a VP or something like that, it's like at the end of the day, if I can hire somebody that can deliver tremendous value at the stage we're at for the next 18 to 20 to 24 months, of course, I'd love to see them grow into a broader set of responsibilities and whatever new business unfolds based on our growth that, that they're maybe help driving or, or deliver. But if they're not the right person anymore in you know two and a half years time, that's also okay. We can go then find the executive that's right for that new stage of the company. So just having some honest dialogue about that kind of stuff, because you'll see people misalign those things all the time and it's a recipe for disaster. That is awesome, Kelly. Anything we haven't talked about, but anything else just that just comes top of mind in terms of useful tips or things you're seeing for those organizations that are looking for an executive in any of these new areas and just things that have been helpful as you've encountered uh, the opportunity to bring on a new leader. Yeah, I, this is a little bit... I, to, to some people, Jared, they'll think, oh, that's... Yeah, I really like this line of thinking. To other people, it's going to be healthcare heresy, as it were. But I tend to be a big proponent of this. And, and it is being honest about the nature of this role and whether or not pre-existing healthcare expertise is necessary. And perhaps... Maybe even the reality that pre-existing healthcare expertise could be a hindrance, right? Some people are like, oh no, healthcare is special. It's 
you must know the business. It's so complex. You know, nobody that comes from outside of it could ever be effective. And you and I both know that to not be true. Now, there is a lot of nuance. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of red tape. And for someone that doesn't understand or anticipate those things, it, it can really be a difficult transition. But if, if you follow the logic for a minute, Jared, that, okay, there's this big consumer movement. And man, since you started your podcast series, the, the multiple of them, I feel like it's becoming even more and more prevalent day. In. I, I, you know, is it correlation? Is it causation? I don't know. I'm going to give you credit. I think you started it. <laughs> you're driving this forward. But you see it everywhere in healthcare, this drive to consumerism. And the reason that this is happening now is because it's very, it's been a very consumer unfriendly industry for the most part. It's very hard to shop. The experiences have been really bad. And my wife went to the dermatologist this week on time, which is hard for us. We have four Four children and waited for like an hour and 25 minutes to be seen past her scheduled appointment time. Because you know what? It doesn't really matter to the health system. They're still generating revenue if you show up and get seen and they'll stack you as late as they want, right? And so things like that would be an indicator that healthcare is lagging, right? In, in some of these qualities, right? And that it will be a differentiator in the future. So if that's true, how helpful is somebody else's healthcare experience in your organization if the industry writ large has been considered to be lagging. It might be necessary depending on what the role is, right? Like it might be impossible to not have healthcare experience, but you might get an entirely different line of sight to opportunities into how you should build your product or your experience or design your service for someone that is coming with fresh eyes from outside of your industry. And maybe who's done it in some other highly regulated industry. I, I like to use like financial services as a proxy because there's, you know, sometimes there's 10, 12, 15 years ahead in terms of regulation and then the subsequent consumerism and digitization of those services. So that's just one thing I would encourage people to be open-minded to as you think about these things is that you might actually get a more effective and more impactful hire by looking outside of your you know, your backyard, so to speak. So that's just what, yeah, that's one parting note that I would leave with people. Don't be afraid to consider non-healthcare candidates where you know it can make sense and where it's not some major liability for you as a business. And I think you can get outsized results from doing that in the right spots. So that that, that may be one parting truth that I would encourage people to, to weigh and consider. I love me some parting truths. So that's that was outstanding. <laughs> I want to thank you for giving us so much to think about today. If a listener would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Great question. I am on LinkedIn all day, every day. It is a big tool for, for the business that I'm in. And I just like, you know, try to be involved with, uh, with digital health dialogue and discussions there. So find me, you know, Kelly Gill, Flywheel Search Group on LinkedIn.com. And then, you know, hey, we've got a website, uh, www.flywheelsearchgroup.com. It's in the process of being revamped, but there is something there for you to eyeball. And then you can email me directly if you so chose. It's uh, kgill, K-G-I-L-L at flywheelsearchgroup.com. Well, thanks again. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Kelly Gill and welcoming him back to the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jared. Talk to you soon. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. Thank you.